To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? I got a brand new podcast for you. This week I have back on my good buddy Miguel Morales. Uh, so Miguel is from southern Arizona. I met him down there. I've known him for a couple years now. I met him down there, coos hunting, connected with him. And then this past season we kind of hunted together over there. He's just a great guy and a wealth of knowledge. Um, he's killed like eight coos deer over 100 inches in a row spot and stock with his bow, which is just absolutely amazing. Nobody's doing that. Um, so he's really proficient. And, and this podcast isn't all about coos. We talk about it because it pertains to a lot of other Western hunting, and Miguel is going on a big muley hunt this year. And so we kind of talk about that. But what I really wanted this podcast to be about was executing a good shot. Like how does he keep it together in the crunch? How does he, you know, what's his thought process? What is sh- what is his shooting process? What's going through his mind? Um, to execute those good shots time and time again. It's something I think about a lot. And so it's it's great to have, you know, another successful hunter on the podcast where we can just compare notes and 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 see what he's doing and see what I'm doing and kind of talk it through. Uh, so it's just a great podcast all about executing that perfect shot. Sponsor for today's show, we have Zamberlin Boots. Uh, Zamberlin Boots, man, they are just uh, an awesome company that designs awesome shoes. I'm, I'm really pumped. I've been using their boots for the last couple of years and really impressed. And um, then this year, they were going to discontinue the, the boot that I had been using. It was a Yearn 252. And I was bummed because I love that boot. Uh, but I got the new boot, and I just got it. And... Um, it is a new and improved version of it. It is so light, so nimble. Um, it's just the perfect amount of, of stiffness and flex to feel like a tennis shoe. Vibram soles. Um, I'm just super pumped on this boot for this season. So it's the 320 new Trailite Evo GTX. Um, that's what I got. It's a, they just use the highest quality leather. I don't know how they're getting the boot that light. It looks like it's going to hold up really good. I think I mentioned Vibram soles, just the best soles out there. And this is a quality boot that's going to keep waterproof for me, lightweight so I can climb mountains. It's just, it, it's, it's absolutely perfect. I also got, uh, they're making like a, you know, you guys know how I always like to wear running shoes while I'm hunting. So I like the mid-hike boot for more aggressive hunts. New Zealand, that's what I wore in the Southern Alps. These muley hunts, I think it's a good idea. The stiffness, it really helps propel you down the trail, and it gives you more support, more ankle support when side-hilling and things. And so, you know, I think that that mid-hike boot is a good, or that low-hike boot is a good way to go for a lot of these hunts. But I also like to wear a running shoe a lot with my strong ankles, and they have a new 103 Hike Light RR. Um, basically, basically it's like a burlier running shoe. It's got a Vibram sole on the bottom. It's leather. It's ultra lightweight. Like I think this thing is going to stalk and hike like a mother. And so I'm just super impressed with the products they're coming out with. I I can't wait to use these, these couple new pairs of boots and shoes I have and try them out this season. Um, just super impressed. So, uh, if you guys are in the market for some new shoes or boots, make sure to check out Zamberlin. Our other sponsor for today's show is Onyx Maps. 
Um, Onyx is just a great company. You guys know, like I, I talk about Onyx and use them so much for scouting. Um, I look at my screen time at the end of the week and a lot of it is on Onyx. I love using it on my computer. And once you make an account, uh, your maps and your waypoints, any notes you make, trails you mark, distances, it's on all platforms. It's on your computer and it's on your phone. Uh, you can get, you know, you can use your GPS, so you don't even need, uh, you know, a, a, a GPS anymore, because you can use the GPS on your phone even if you don't have cell phone coverage. All you do is you save the maps. They call catching the maps. Uh, you can save them in different detail, low resolution. You can get a huge area, high resolution. You know, you get a smaller area. Save all your maps before you get there, and then you can use that as a GPS. I, I am using my nonstop scouting before the hunt on the hunt uh it's just such a valuable resource they have so many great overlays you can use with uh, i've been using the one with the um the fire map that shows the burns and what year they burn uh, you can use the roadless map where it shows you where there are no roads no access uh, just an an absolute uh, resource for us uh, Western hunters, and and absolutely, I I couldn't do what I do without Onyx Maps. I absolutely love their program. So make sure to check them out if you don't already have a membership. Uh, Onyx Maps. And with that, um, yeah, over there at Eastman's, um, we're just we're just cranking along here. I got um, a good article I just turned in this morning for the Eastman's Hunting Journal. I'm super excited about that. Kind of talk about the podcasts and successful hunters I've had on before, and then talk about finding more mule deer, um, finding them in the different seasons and what to look for. Um, yeah, it's just a super article. I'm really proud of it. It's in the big magazine, the Eastman's Hunting Journal, um, be coming out in about a month or so. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, kind of dialing in my hunts for this year. I'm going to pick a couple hunts to, to film, and so I'll pitch those to Guy and Ike here, get an email together the next couple days. And uh, see if we can film a couple of these hunts and then um, leave the other ones, the wilderness and things. I'll go solo or uh, with buddies, but I just cannot wait. It's going to be such an awesome hunting season. Ending up with some good tags and some fun plans in the works. And um, yeah, just trying to get all my work done and and uh, be training hard. I just went to uh, the top of the Sphinx the other day. Um, just an awesome hike up there. It sits at 10,876. Um, and you leave the parking lot at about 6,000 or so. So yeah, just a really good hike to the top. Just good to get to the mountains. Saw a bunch of bears in there. And, um, so that was fun. And, and, uh, yeah, just start scouting here. It's July 1st. So time to start looking for some good muleys. I got that Colorado and a Wyoming tag. So I'm going to hunt those back to back. Uh, so I got to get down there and, and, uh, do a little scouting and see what I can locate, see what I can turn up, but I'm pumped. Um, man, I mean, we're like a month or two away from season from go time here. So I want to put out some really good podcasts, record some really good podcasts, get you guys that important information to be successful this season out in the woods. And with that, I've been rambling long enough. Let's get into this podcast with my buddy Miguel Morales and uh, me, your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Like, we'll just get right into it because we have such great conversations every time we talk that I, I know this podcast will be the same. But you're just a, a diehard bow hunter. Um, you killed another giant coos down there in Arizona this year. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> Man, that was so cool. We were able to share that experience together. I hunted with you for a couple days down there this year while I was down there. Yeah, it was a good time, man. 
just kind of worked pretty well in our favor. That was a pretty good day. <laughs> Man, a really good day. Any, you know, any day you can aerial two coups, you know, that's um, that's as good as it gets. I had been struggling for. I don't know, five, six, seven days, something like that. I can't remember exactly when we connected there, but yeah, man, those things are wily. They're so switched on. They're just one of my favorite species to hunt. You really have a special deer there in Arizona, and, and I know you realize you've hunted them all your life, but it's it's really cool to be able to tag along with you and soak up some of that knowledge. Yeah, I, I think that day was uh, it just kind of all lined up, you know the. Uh... I think the moon phase was correct. The, the, just the temperature, everything just worked in our favor, and it was, uh, it, you know, it, it is a special deer. You know, I mean, it's a lot of people come down to, you know, from all over the country, sometimes even all over the world, to try and and get, you know, this subspecies. And uh, you know, since it's always all switched on and everything, it's it makes for a for a great hunt. Man, I'd say, I mean, just one of the most challenging animals with your bow in North America, and especially like the, the way you like to do it and the way I like to do it, that spot and stock on the ground. And so um, you had mentioned the moon phases. It, it seems like with those deer, they're so switched on and even their rut, like they have to, for it to be really good hunting, it almost seems like uh, they need to be hard in the rut. So that's what you're talking about with the moon phases, right? And not only that, it's just like also it kind of seems like uh, the the movement during the day, it kind of helps out. You know, I mean, if it's a full moon, you know, they're more likely to be, you know, not moving as much in the morning you know they're kind of more the middle of the day type of thing so there's there's some science to it but you know it's like it's kind of like i said it before it, that was a really good day as far as like the times went and everything else and uh, we got to see a lot of animals that day and yes the rut does help quite a bit i mean on on average you don't get to see that amount of activity especially, you know, throughout most of the day. So it was, uh, it's, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but, uh, it kind of all lined up that day. Yeah. Well, I, I've just fallen in love with hunting those things. Like I just, um, I can't believe that it's a, you know, great hunting is available for anybody that wants to go down and do it, but it's just like the ultimate challenge down there and you've definitely got it dialed in. So is that your, um, is that your eighth coos over a hundred inches with your bow spot and stock? Is that what this one was this year? Yeah, it's crazy, yeah, Miguel. It. That is so cool. Um, you're so dialed in on those deer. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, and it doesn't. Nobody ever starts out, you know, saying, "Oh yeah, man, I'm just gonna start killing deer after deer." It just kind of works out that way, and it just you know you just keep learning and you keep evolving and you keep you know seeing what works and what doesn't and uh you just kind of you know through trial and error you just keep going with what works so i mean it's 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 been working <laughs> man i would say yeah it's been working um yeah so the those deer you say like the the rut the good dates the moon phase everything lined up where we were seeing good deer and i think that's interesting with those coos deer 
So, like, I've heard of, I've heard it referred to as a poor man sheep hunt, but you really you absolutely live and die behind your glass. And you've like I think we talked about it the last time we had a podcast, but your go to glass is you use two Swarovski sixty five millimeter spotting scopes mounted to a custom plate that you have, and then you use that as your binoculars to scan through country, and you're able to just dissect country miles out with those things. Yeah, and I mean that's really my my key to success is is just being able to you know find these deer because it it really is difficult to to be able to uh I mean it nothing, you know, it's not that you can't get it done with tens. I mean, you've done it and stuff like that, but you know, as you keep you know, you keep seeing further and further country out there you start looking at other places that you want to kind of go check out and and it gives you an ability to look way out there and still not be in their comfort zone or anywhere in the area so you can let them basically when you see them you 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 let them be and uh until you see something that you want and then you kind of develop the plan but uh yeah i mean it's just a question of the more the more you can cover in a given time period, the better the chance that you're going to find a, a good buck. Yeah, well, and I love that approach just to hunting all critters, just that low impact. And I know, like, I always get focused on talking with, about coos deer with you because I love to hunt them and because you're so good at hunting them. But, you know, you transpose a lot of these skills into your other hunting and other species. But, yeah, sitting sitting behind that glass and being able to pick things apart from afar and not walk through it, not chase them around, not let them know you're even hunting them or there is such the key to, to like spot and stock bow hunting, which is it, – it's my preferred method too. I just love finding those vantage points. And you're right. Your glass is only effective to a certain distance. And – you know, the tens are really good for close and out to about a half a mile or whatever. And then you have to step into more power. And I have that spotting scope with me too, which I pick apart. And it's just not as comfortable as sitting behind your setup as, as you've got so much eye relief and those binoculars, you know, you're not squinting in a spotting scope trying to see, but, um, you know, every distance there's a glass that's perfect for it, you know, and finding that, that right glass to pick apart that country and see them, low impact and then be able to make this like this plan methodical stalker play on them man it's so key um the only tough thing with those coos deers they're always moving so i find myself like trying to get out there and relocate them again off a vantage point and i notice you really hunt them patiently yeah and and you said something very key right there that you have to be comfortable when you're glassing that's I can't stress that enough. You know, whether you're sitting down, standing up, whatever it is, you have to be comfortable because if you're not comfortable, you're not going to be behind that glass very long. You know, so I think that's something that's very key. Also, the more comfortable you are, the longer you're prepared to stay behind that glass. And that's, you know, making sure you're in the shade so the sun isn't beating on you or whatever it is. That's that's another key point because if you're not behind the glass you're not going to see animals you know to a certain degree but uh yes the it's the thing is is that i have the luxury to be able to uh to hunt pretty much the whole month so it's like 
I know that if the stock isn't right, if I don't, if I don't think that I, that it's a high percentage situation, I have the luxury to be able to, you know, back off and kind of, uh, wait for another opportunity. That's one advantage, you know, from being here. But if, I mean, there's no reason why you can't, you know, in a, I mean, like you spent a week, you know, if I, I think that if a guy spends, uh, comes out and spends 10 days, he has a really good opportunity at, at, uh, getting some good stocks while he's there. And that takes into account, you know, whether, you know, whether they're, you know, cause some days are obviously better than others for movement. So if, if, uh, you spend 10 days, I think you have a pretty good opportunity at, uh, at a really good animal, you know, and being able to put it together and put them on the ground. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is about the right time frame. And yeah, you talk about movement a lot, like when we're discussing them. And coos deer are wild. Like it isn't just first light and last light on them. Like they get up and move as the sun gets on them in the morning. Or <laughs> yep. and, and like you talk about different times of movement. Like sometimes it can be really hot, like uh, not really hot, but like uh, really hot as far as movement and activity. Right in the middle of the day is when you see them. But it's wild because – you know, it's like we talk about these vantage points in glassing, and it really is a belief in the process of, of the master vantage point and keeping your eye on the hillside. And sometimes, and it doesn't matter if you're mule deer, elk, coos deer, sometimes you could you could walk to the best vantage point in the world, but it's just not the best time to look at it. And you glass around and you don't see anything and you think, oh, I'm going to go find another spot to where if you sit on that vantage point for half a day – you know, and you catch that that good time or that good movement, whatever those animals are, like all of a sudden you get to see what's in there, but the mountains just come alive during that good time when there's animal movement. And then other times of the day, you you see absolutely nothing from that vantage point. It's just so wild how you, you really have to believe in it and sit behind your glass like you talked about being comfortable, being in the shade or you know sitting in a comfortable spot, really good glass so you don't get eye strain. But you have to believe in those vantage points, and you have to sit on them and spend some time to see what's really living in there, don't you think? Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's I'm a kind of firm believer that it takes a – you know, a couple of days, a couple of days in the morning, a couple of days in the evening to really see what's going on in an area before you kind of pass judgment, whether it's yay or nay type of thing. And kind of, obviously there's certain areas that are better at certain times of the year, just because of the way, you know, the rut works out and stuff like that. I mean, during the, during that time frame, you know, during the rut, you, you really more like hunting the does and kind of seeing what comes to check them. But with coos deer, they're always going to be kind of in the general area. They're never going to – it's not like a mule deer that they'll take off, you know, 10, 20 miles to, uh, you know, during the rut. This is just kind of like uh, in the general area, usually, you know, five miles type of thing. They're, they're more of a homebody, you know. Even, even with the rut, they don't make like huge, huge jumps. So it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to, um, just put in your time and see what you find and kind of go from there. Yeah, that's right. It does take more time to dissect those spots. So, um, 
Yeah, that, like I remember you telling me, like when you find a buck, you're talking about their home range. You know that buck's in that area, but you definitely don't see him every day. Those coos deer are such ghosts. Like you just know there's a buck that has a home range that you've seen a time or two in this area. He shows up at different times. Maybe he goes over the ridge. You don't get a stock at him, but you know he's living in there. So you'll return to that vantage point. So what you're saying is, is like it takes a couple days to see what's really in there and moving around or multiple days multiple times on the vantage point then not even you know one good um one good setup like you're not going to see every deer in there right exactly and the main thing is is that um it's more about like when you lose faith in a in a spot or whatever it's it's more along the lines of like i mean if you're seeing more deer someplace else during that time frame obviously you're going to hunt where you see more deer but never um I don't really ride off a spot until I spend some time really see what's going on. But um, you never know. I mean, it's all it takes is that one buck that might be in that area. That's the only deer that you see in there. And uh, it's a huge buck. And there's reason why he's probably in there is because nobody really goes in there. Nobody really messes with him. So all you need is that the right deer to show up, and, and that's where you hunt. It's happened to me, you know, in, in other situations where it's um, it's not a normal spot, but you find some some bomber bucks, you know, kind of the fringe area type uh, habitat, you know, if you want to call it that. Okay. So, I mean, you know, sometimes it's like I've seen them in it, basically it's uh, grasslands, you know what I mean? You never think to see a, a coos deer in there, and uh, he, he was a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it just all depends. You got to give it time, and you gotta and you gotta see uh, uh, what it produces, and and just keep mental notes as to times and everything else, and kind of go from there. Yeah, you um, you have such a great approach to it. You have multiple vantage points that you hit, and you kind of look like, as you mentioned, habitat and grasslands and fringe habitat. Um, you know, and 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 you've been hunting coos your entire life down there, and so you have so many great vantage points that you found that you hit. And like you say, you're keeping track of the deer, the bucks that are in there that year, and you're really looking for an absolute world class coos. A lot of us guys, we're just looking for a decent one, uh, but you're looking for that next level buck. But wouldn't you say as far as habitat that, you know, and, and coos live in such a diverse habitat all the way up from the timber tops to the, the desert valley floor, but it's like that more open terrain that you can find with good coos deer populations in them. Like, like that's the key to success, isn't it? Just because you can keep an eye on them, you can spot them, they don't disappear. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that's the best habitat to find your vantage points in? Oh, of course. I yeah. mean, if you want to, if, if you're for high success, yes, that's definitely the way to go. I mean, the type of country that, that, um, that we were hunting is, is ideal. You know, you gotta have, if you can't keep an eye on them, you know, you you know, firsthand they'll squirt out on you, and you don't even know what happens sometimes. 
So it's, it's it really is important. I do think so. Yeah, well, and I, you know, that factors into a lot of my hunting. I, I just, I am such a spot and stock hunter. I want to be able to see, walk with my eyes, see what's living in there, and and see the the real mule deer. Like a lot of times, there's a legend of a great big timber buck, and maybe there is. But for me, even the big mature deer act like deer. You know, they just live in good spots. They have good instincts, but I just want to be able to see. And so even for elk spots, like I want to hunt elk in open terrain. That's when I kill bulls is when I can see them. You know, mule deer, I want to find open terrain. And that's not to say that I I don't, you know, vary my approach and hunt some timber. But if it's all timber, dark timber, like I'm probably not going to focus my effort there. I'm going to focus my effort where I can see. And I've just found that these deer, you know, they get like a – uh, nutrition from this meadow grass like there's there's so so much um it's such a great food source it's choice food source in these meadows and they've got to come out and feed in them so no matter what the species it, it's just my approach and i know you're bow only you're almost all spot and stock as well like i just look for that more open terrain for whatever species i'm hunting it seems oh yeah i mean it's like there there's some great bucks and some thick stuff and if you're hunting with a bow you're going to be hard pressed to be able to get in on them any other way other than sitting water and um you know when i was talking grasslands it's still open you can still see so that's the key to success for us because that's we use our eyes and if we can't use our eyes then we we're handicapped as far as uh, our hunting style goes so i mean and it's like you said this our methods can be used for just about any species as long as you can put a glass on them. Yeah, well, and, um, you know, and sometimes it's like I really like the master vantage point. I think that's the way to go. But, you know, sometimes you can't get a master vantage point over country, and so you've got to, like, work a ridge line and then grab three or four vantage points on that looking down into a canyon or overlooking some spots. And so, yeah, you kind of vary your approach, but – Ultimately, it comes down to that open terrain, being able to see what you're after and being able to watch them and make a planned stock on them. And so that coos deer hunting, it improves my game so much for other species just because they are so challenging, so switched on. They're really tough to see. They blend in just perfectly with their habitat. And so the degree of difficulty is so high that you know those skills they just transpose right over into hunting other game species and so um like down there in in that and you talk about hunting the whole month month of january that whole month of january is the coos rut and gosh you get to hunt some of the best units down there you know you can almost hunt the entire state for coos down there and what a great training ground down there just for getting good at 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 making plays and and sitting behind your glass and finding master vantage points, man. I'm just so hooked on the hunting you have down there. Yeah, it's awesome, man. I mean, it's like I went up to uh, Utah last year. That's right. And you, and uh, You arrowed a nice buck up there, right? Yeah, I mean, I had a great time, and but it was still the same method, just a different species. And that's, that's all there – that's that's where you kind of uh, – reap the rewards is is that you know it's it's still tough don't get me wrong but you know it's mentally you're like okay you know they're they're acting a little bit a little bit uh i don't want to say dumber but 
not as switched on, not as ready to go, not as, you know, they'll take a little bit more movement or whatever the case may be. So you're right. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful training ground. It, <laughs> you know, if you can get away with, get away with it, with a coos, you're more than likely going to get away with it with a, with a mule deer, you know, an elk also. So, I mean, it's, it really, it puts your game at a, at a higher level, but, um, at the end of the day, no matter how many deer get put on the ground, you still get humbled and, uh, humbled very nicely at times. So <laughs> kind of right? happens. Oh man, that's bow hunting. That's all of us, right? Uh, exactly. it's, yeah, it's the challenge of it that keeps us all here and enjoying it. Um, how cool. And then, um, yeah, you've, and you've been successful on elk and mule deer. I know you were up blacktail hunting, uh, a year or two ago. Um, and then this year, it sounds like you drew a good tag in Colorado. You're going to be hunting high country mule deer up there, huh? Yeah. going to take a trip up there and see what happens. You know, I had a few bonus points and, uh, hopefully be able to connect with something up there it should be a great time oh good for you um yeah i love the colorado high country it's going to be a good year too um just that snowpack's really hanging on a long time which keeps those alpine basins nice and green i'm super excited i found out i'm going to hunt colorado as well this year so yeah it it ought to be a good time yeah i'm 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 really looking forward to it you know i mean i've already started you know cleaning up my diet and stuff like that down 17 pounds i still got a couple months to go so hopefully you know been running also because uh man i was looking in some of that country up there and it's it's tall <laughs> you know oh man it is feet type stuff and it's like well if i don't do something it's gonna hurt <laughs> oh man good for you miguel yeah you've been um that's not easy to do good for you down that weight and uh running and working out and getting ready for that high country yeah you're right it just um you know you talk about paying dividends like it that just pays such dividends you know during country being in that that good shape that good fitness um you just feel so good up there hunting so yeah good on you yeah and you know it's you know i'm gonna take some advice and probably go up there a couple days before the hunt try and acclimatize a little bit you know before you start going you know before you start trying to go hard and uh so it's it'll be my first time hunting at uh at 12,000 feet so I'm just trying to take as much you know I'm down here at like 4,000 so it's uh it's a jump yeah that's a jump for sure yeah I've heard some statistics Gosh, I I think it's like for every thousand feet you go up, you're three percent less effective or something like that. So yeah, you can be operating at eighty percent your full capacity when you get up there around twelve thousand. And I just noticed that elevation, like it does, man. It just takes such a toll on you. Like it just makes everything more difficult. It makes um, you know, the steps and the climbs and in the miles it kind of just makes it more difficult like you're you're not getting as much oxygen into your blood that's fueling your muscles and so everything kind of feels fatigued and like uh you know it's an appetite suppressor so it's definitely real up there and and i think that's smart like what you're saying is going a couple days early and trying to acclimate to the to the high elevation cuz your body will adapt and get used to it and then what is it produces like a uh, more red blood cells or fuels your your muscles more efficiently or effective 
So yeah, I'm getting up there and sleeping at that elevation, trying to get your body used to it, because the first couple days are kind of the toughest. But I, I think that's really smart, yeah. And it it's smart that that elevation is real. Like you can try to ignore, it, but you get up at ten thousand, eleven, twelve thousand feet, man. You just feel it up there. Well, when you know, I used to be a mechanic on helicopters and used to fly in the back. And if you're more than ten thousand feet up, that helicopter won't go past, you know the 10,000 foot elevation yep. and when you're at 2,000 feet above that it's it's telling you something there's something definitely there there's something definitely to it oh man there is yeah it's, <laughs> um you know and you don't sleep as good and like uh, it just puts a stress on your body you know uh, like they talk about the death zone at Everest you know where you know you the human body can't survive up there but that that high altitude yeah it it puts a stress on us, so no, it's good to prepare for it, and it's good you're at four thousand feet too. That's um, you know, it's better than sea level. I mean, really, yeah. these guys coming from sea level and then trying to hunt, you know, ten thousand feet or twelve thousand feet. You know, my my Hawaii buddies, you know, they come from sea level when they come out here. Man, they they just feel that elevation where you know I live at about close to six thousand, and so. You know, I, I, I sure get a jump on everybody living at that higher altitude. It's just my body's used to it. Yeah, you know, like I had a friend of mine that was, uh, he he uh, lives over there in Yuma. He's from Nogales, but, you know, he spent a lot of time over there. He moved over there. He's working over there. And he's like, you know, he came over and we were going to work on his bow. And he's like, well, I'm going to go for a run beforehand. And he's like, man. That elevation difference just kicked my butt, he says. So so if it's three times that much, man, I got my work cut out for me. So it's uh I'm definitely uh sticking to a routine. Been you know, like I said, been running, you know, about two and a half miles a day, picking up my pace and hopefully by, you know, the uh I wanna get up to the five, six mile mark and, and be able to maintain a you know, a decent pace and uh see what see what I can do up there. You know, I just, I hate to go up there and, and, and not be able to, to perform as best as I can without, uh, you know, getting that mental aspect where it's just draining, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. You take, you're taking it serious. You're going to do great up there, Miguel. Well, that's the key is just preparing yourself for it, mind and body and, and, and and uh shooting and bow and everything like that's part of the process but uh you love to bow hunt and you travel all over being successful doing it like you're gonna have a blast up there you're gonna have a good time and be well prepared and in better shape for it so man i'm i'm pumped for you you're gonna have a great trip so so that's the next thing i want to get into is like i'm i'm so you take your 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 bow hunting so serious you take your archery really serious too um you you really pay attention to the details of your your setup, and um, you you shoot your bow a lot, and and um, so I, I just want to get into your shooting and your process. I'm sure you've been getting your bows dialed in for this hunt, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I switched out strings probably about three weeks ago, and I've been kind of playing with different things, trying to get it just perfect. Um, it's a very big part of my game you know i mean a lot of people uh, you know i i think you just kind of have to realize you, you have to set goals and i think you know a lot of people say well you know 
I don't care. I just want to get with it, be able to get within 40 yards to take the animal. Hey, that's great. For me, I try and put everything as much as in my favor. You know, I mean, I've had some animals that I've gotten really close on. And it kind of seems like sometimes it really makes for a very, for me, it's more difficult to get a shot off at those really close ranges. And it kind of seems like bad stuff can happen there too. It's not just a question of uh, that, well, because it's close, it's, you know, it's a pop shot. You know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that mindset also. But I kind of like to stay a little bit further back, a little bit, you know, where it's comfortable archery range and be able to let the animal do his thing and not even know that I'm there. And that way I have an animal that's relaxed. And for me, it's very important to be super accurate. So, I mean, I do carry stabilizers front and rear. I mean, there's... I try and go lightweight on a lot of stuff, but optics, I don't, and my my bow, I don't. I get it to the weight that I need for it to be the most accurate, playing with stabilizer weights, playing with whatever it is. I mean, I don't have a quiver. I carry a, a hip quiver, and that has to also do for me with, you know, the the quiver catching wind or whatever. So it's really important for me to be able to uh, – to have the, the, the right setup. And then um, there's a lot of tuning that I do to make sure that my bow is as forgiving as as it can be. Yeah, um, it's so important. Like we all have this foundation of skills and the foundation of, of shooting, like when you can rely upon your shooting, boy, you can make some stuff happen on a on a hunt. You know, when, when you can execute in the moment and like you say, you know, you you practice with your with your gear and and you like to be, you know, on those longer yardages where, like you say, and, and there's there's benefits to it and and there, there's benefits to both ways, you know, getting close yeah. and shooting far. But, yeah, you're right. Like those animals are relaxed. They don't know you're there. You're able to sit and execute your shot. It seems like when you're really close. Like, um, like you say, sometimes your mindset is that it's a chip shot where you can mess up that close shot more so than a longer shot because a longer shot you force yourself to sit and execute. Um, but yeah, being able to count on that foundation of shooting and being able to rely upon your equipment and then, and then also, you know, your skills and, and then, your your ability to keep cool in the crunch and execute a shot is such it's so advantageous it's so huge for a bow hunter and so you're right i you know i spend a ton of time with my bow being the absolute best shot i can really dialing in my equipment and i know you do too um you know working with your stabilizers and your weight and the reaction of your bow the hold of your bow uh shooting longer yardages i know like you're um your tolerances for weight on your arrows 
uh, you know, that you don't let them get even a, a, a gram outside of weight tolerances, that you want them all exactly the same and, and, and you pay attention to the detail of the way your broadhead sits to your fletchings and the whole deal, like you just go through it. And so when it comes down to that moment of truth, like you can, you can count on yourself to make that shot. But so that's what I want to dive into, Miguel, is like you're really good at setting, setting up, tuning these bows, the technical side of it. But there's an element like what's in between the ears of executing on these shots. So executing on a target, you get dialed in, you build your confidence. But boy, when that animal's standing out there and you get that shot, like uh, what's different executing on an animal or what's your shot process when you're you're going through, you're going to get a shot at an animal? Do you go on autopilot? Do you talk yourself through the shot? Do you is it something that you have to spend constant effort at, or does it just come naturally? Oh man, it's it's one of those things where it's been a long time in the making, and I still screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think some people say that. Um, that uh well you know you got to always think positive and this that and the other and sometimes when you know that it's going to happen i get amped up or whatever but for me it's like you know what it doesn't matter if you get a shot or not it doesn't matter just i try and concentrate on the process and i try and tell myself hey either it happens or it doesn't happen you know i mean i'm constantly talking to myself um you know like on this last hunt I kind of, there was some stuff that happened with my bow, you know, the stabilizer kind of came loose and kind of, you know, swung on me and stuff like that. And um, the only thing you can do is try and and remedy that as fast as possible without trying to make too much movement and get back to where you were at and be able to, uh, you know, for example, once I decide that I'm going to, that that's the animal I'm going to take a shot at. I don't look at horns anymore. I don't look at, at at anything other than what I need to do to put an arrow in them. And it's um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, it's 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 worked for me more often than not. And the focus on on the shot is uh, is critical, especially you know at the further distances. I mean, I I just basically just talk to myself and tell myself, you know, just aim, aim, aim. And, you know, the shot eventually goes off. I mean, uh, it's sometimes I remember what I think and sometimes I don't because it's, you know, it's you kind of get that tunnel vision and, you know, but um, it's just trying to keep it together just long enough to make the shot and make a good shot is what's important. That's what I try and focus on. You know, once you decide that that's the animal, you kind of have to decide, okay, well, now I have to start going through my process and, you know, to set the, you know, get the range, set the sight, you know, make sure you, you know, it's like, kind of like when we drop down, when I dropped down on, on the buck from this past year, you know, I got in behind that, you know, that, uh, that juniper, and it was one of those things where it's just like, well, the buck was to the left, so I kind of had my first crack at the buck, 
other, you know, than the dough type of thing. So you kind of think about those. I think about those things also trying to, if anybody's going to see my movement, it's going to be the buck. And I know that the dough had me pegged, but you know, if, if the dough has you pegged and she takes off, she's taking the buck with, with her. But if the buck sees you and the dough isn't as, you know, isn't onto you, even though the buck wants, you know, knows that something's there, he's going to hold until that doe takes off. So that's something else that's kind of in the back of my head, you know, especially in that situation. And once I was able to draw back and step out, it was just aiming, you know, and just pulling and aiming and pulling. And But I'm just telling myself, you know, aim, aim, aim. Shot went off and, you know, it's, uh, it, my process worked in that situation. So, I mean, it's, it's just getting the process down and, 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 uh, it's not really autopilot, but, um, you have to like focus on key points and that will make the rest happen. I don't know if I explained myself very well as far as that goes, but. Oh uh, yeah. You made so many great points there, Miguel. And I relate to you on so much of this execution on animals. It's so wild. All the animals you've killed with your bow, all the trophies you'd kill with your bow, and you can still mess up on any encounter. And I'm the same way. Like it's like all the animals that I've harvested and successful shots I've made. I still have to focus every single time I go in and I'm going to get an opportunity and and you also said like you get tunnel vision and you're focusing on certain points of your shot like you do you get in the fog of adrenaline and it's almost like being in a car wreck it's such a an adrenaline packed moment when you're going to get the opportunity and you're going to get a shot like sometimes my head or my ears will almost be buzzing you know you just got so much adrenaline running through your veins so you're right it's keeping yourself calm in those moments i liked what you said like not looking at the horns once you know you're going to kill that animal you're looking for your window of opportunity you're looking for that broadside quartering away that animal to stop you're you're looking to 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 draw your bow and execute and 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 make that shot on that animal and you were also like you mixed in the encounter of your buck last year and how you got to that juniper and you slid around the outside and the doe was hidden by the juniper and you were just exposing yourself to the buck and so i think that's also important is like those key movements, those nuances to what you can get away with and what you can't when you're in close range, like a lot of times that's the difference between getting the shot or not. Like some guys will draw their bow and big movements coming around or standing up. Like everything needs to be slow and methodical and thought out and even like edging out from the edge of the tree needs to be slow and drawn your bow. But a lot of times that makes the difference. And then, like, I'm going over a lot here, but I just relate to your shot process is then I need to think about key points in my shot. And it's so easy to draw back, have your pin just find that animal and go now, you know, and buck that shot. And you just <laughs> like you want to get a shot so bad in an animal. And sometimes you're working days or weeks at it that when it finally comes, like you almost just want to get a shot of that animal, whether you hit him or not. And then after you miss, you go. God, why didn't I execute? Why didn't I, I – all I needed to do was execute. I was in a good range, and so you're right. you got to get a hold of yourself, and so you told yourself to aim, aim, or pull, pull. Like I use one of the – like
like almost the same method. And so like you pay attention to the details. Okay, I've got a good range. Okay, now I'm dialing my sight to that range. I know the buck hasn't taken a step. I know he's there. Like I think that's important. And then you come back and and every time before I draw my bow, I'm taking a couple deep breaths and I tell myself to execute because what that means in my head is to execute a good shot. Don't just buck that shot and let it go. You either execute a perfect arrow or a don't shoot. Like that's the mindset that I've started to get. And so then I draw back and then I tell myself, okay, anchor. And that's where I anchor everything in. I make sure my peep is centered. I level my bow. And this takes a couple seconds, but it's necessary to the process. You can't rush that. And then I tell myself, put the pin on the animal. And so like I just, my pin goes to right where I want to hit. And then I tell myself, aim, 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 and like same thing or pull, 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 just something like I'm just telling myself. And what that does is it allows my pin to float where I want to hit, and I'm executing on my shot. And on animals, it's not like you have to wait for 10 seconds for your shot to break. Usually you decide to start pulling on your shot. Within a second or two, that arrow is on its way. Like you're filled with adrenaline. You're pulling hard on that bow. But it's necessary to like pick that spot and let that pin aim, and then that when that shot bucks, it seems like it hits that animal perfect. But I have to do that on every animal, every shot I take. I have to remind myself of it on the stock. And it just like – it sounds so similar to your process, Miguel. That's why I had to just like state it over again, everything that you mentioned in there because I'm the exact same way. To be a good archery shot takes constant effort. Yes, and uh, the the – the whole thing is that for me, it's like you can't you can't be the type of person – like, for example, if, if you're pulling back and your pin is on the animal and you're like – if the last thing in your mind is like, man, I hope this hits, nope, it's not. <laughs> you know, it just seems like it's – you have to concentrate on what's important. You have to – you know, it's – I just can't stress that enough. You know, I mean, there's, there's the times that I, that, you know, in my mind, I've killed animals is when it happens. And if you pull back and you're like, man, I hope this hits. It's like, you're already starting. The, the mental mindset is already in, in, in the negative, you know? So it's, it's really important to, uh, to practice and have to have that confidence. And then just to remember when you're executing on the animal to be able to to uh, concentrate on something simple you know aim 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 and it'll go off and it's and it'll do good <laughs> yeah it's, it's worked for me well um you mentioned practice and confidence like practice is what builds confidence like Confidence can't be just a false arrogance walking around the mountains. Like to actually have confidence in your equipment, like you say, that's when I'm most deadly. When I'm walking around and I know that my stuff is absolutely dialed, I know I'm going to execute my shot. I know all I need is a sliver of opportunity. Man, that's when I'm deadly in the mountains. Yes. Like just, and you get that confidence through practice and proving it to yourself. And so you spend the off season or, you know, even during season, I'm sure shooting but you you spend that off season to really improve on your skills and to to build that confidence in your equipment so you just know when you're just putting those 
the those those really good groups and those really good sets at these distances and you're doing it from a kneeling position and a standing position you're shooting in the wind and you you just build this confidence by knowing that you can deliver that arrow knowing you can make that shot knowing you can get a hold of yourself and you're going to pay attention to the details and when you're walking around just knowing that you can do that like you are so deadly in the mountains and you'll go for stocks that are miles of uh, away because you just know if i get an opportunity i'm gonna kill this big bull or i'm gonna kill this big buck like all i need is a sliver of opportunity and that's when i'm deadly and kill things it's just when i'm when i really have a ton of confidence in my shooting and my ability yeah it's and that's what it all boils down to i mean it's you know it's like when you first start out like i remember you know when i first started bow hunting it's like any chance that i got at making a stock i'd go on because i want to try i want to learn and as you progress you kind of learn what what works and you just kind of scale it back and you see those different factors those different variables that all line up you're like you know what i i got a pretty good shot at this and and that's how it kind of you know it kind of progresses you know and it's the same thing with the shooting it's it's like you keep shooting and you keep trying this and you keep you know trying during practice you try off the wall stuff you know shooting 150 170 yards just to see how it hits well if you got to shoot something at 60 yards 70 yards it's not that big of a deal because in your mind you've already done twice that much and it's and you were able to to hit so it's like it's just it's just different things that get your confidence up you know during practice and and that's i think that's a a, a big key also yeah well yeah you talk about um like uh uh you know being able to realize the situation and when to go all in and when not like learning through and it's like just experience is the ultimate teacher and and you say going for every stock to try to gain experience you learn what you can get away with and what you can't and then you start to develop what a good scenario is and what a bad scenario is what a high percentage opportunity is and what a low percentage opportunity is and, and you start to realize what you can do and what you can't and so you know through that like you, you kind of evolve this process on on you know how how you're gonna how you're gonna go about it or how you know what you can do and what you can't but it's all this experience is the ultimate teacher and kind of teaches you you know what you can do and what you can't do I still got you there Miguel yes okay uh, cut out there for a second but yeah just um you, you kind of learn like what is a good scenario and what is a bad scenario and the animals will teach you that. And like you say, with your shooting, there's multiple different ways to to build that confidence. But the key is to just build it and then get out there, trust in your skills and trust in your process, and then execute on that animal. But so much easier said than done, isn't it? Oh yeah. And one thing that you said that I that you know it's it's so true. It's like when when you're in that situation, it doesn't take ten seconds for the shot to go off because you're already got that adrenaline going and that's one of the things about having a forgiving bow whether you pull hard into it or you don't it should still hit the same spot type of thing you know i mean i do and that's part of my tuning method also you know when you creep tune so if you're pulling hard into the stops or not as hard it still hits on the same level you know i think 
stuff like that is also key, especially during these awkward shots and stuff like that. Having a, a forgiving bow is is key. Kind of helps you cover up your own mistakes, you know. Yeah, I I know you are are so diligent on uh, working with your bow, making a forgiving setup, and it's so important. Me too. Like it's a big part. You know, we talk about practice and mindset. That's one piece of it. The other piece is to have a forgiving piece of equipment that aims good, holds good. And and when you miss by a little bit, it misses by a couple inches, not a couple feet, you know. And so that, exactly. that is really important. You talk about your stabilizers and your weight. And so you just mentioned creep tuning is something that you do. Um, so when you creep tune, so you're talking about pulling hard into your stops, which is your stops on your cams. Or when you're not pulling as hard and kind of relaxed on it, that's all different pounds on your bow. It's all different pull on your bow. So you're talking when you're when you're creep tuning, Miguel, like you're making that arrow shoot like a good hole through paper, whether you're pulling really hard or whether you're pulling a little bit less. And that's just like one factor that you mentioned that goes into making your forgiving tuning for your bow. Is that correct? Well, and it's not really shooting through paper. It's like I'll set up a line at a target and I'll usually start off at 20 yards. Okay. And you know, if you pull in hard and it has to do with a, with the synchronization of the cams. Okay. So if, if they're kind of a little bit out of time, it's either gonna, when you pull hard into the stops, you either hit high or you hit low if it's not correct. But if you, uh, once they're in sync, you pull back hard, or just regular, it's still going to hit on the same horizontal plane. Oh, gotcha. And that's, that's what I'm after. And and I've seen that happen where, you know, I'll go out to close to 100 yards, and all of a sudden I'm getting some highs and lows, and I'm like, well, it felt pretty good. So I kind of test it again a little bit. Okay, yep. And I'll put sometimes even half a twist, you know, on the yokes. And that'll make a difference on on the Hoyts. And once I do that, man, it's it just pounds. So it's uh, um, it's a lot of trial and error, and um, that's why you kind of keep shooting and stuff settles in, and you know your form changes, stuff like that. But when it comes to the synchronization of the cams, I think it's pretty important to to have it as dialed as possible because that's going to get you uh, a really forgiving setup. Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. So yeah, that's got to really help with low and high hits. And so you're just like yes. micro tuning your cam timing to make sure that your cam timing is absolutely perfect. And so yes. it takes a lot of the low and high hits out of there because like your your cams can be timed well, but as you pull harder into the stops or less into the stops, one cam gets ahead of the other, and then it shoots that arrow, which creates the lower high hits. Okay, yeah, I'll have to mess around with that, Miguel, but I just think you're so right, like trying to find the best tune you know, on a vertical line or a horizontal line, making sure that that sight tape – I know I do my sight tape. And, and I have it absolutely dialed when I do. I have my process where I, you know, you shoot 20, make a mark, shoot 80, make a mark, fine tune it, check some distances in between and go out. But I've just noticed that I'll even fine tune my sight tape, 
you know, to the foot per second or even half a foot per second. Yes. Just to, and I'll have a sight tape on that's pretty good out to a distance, but then I'll just start noticing that it's like, man, they're just a touch high out there at the longer yardages. I'm going to change it by a half a foot per second or one foot per second, but just making sure your sight tape is absolutely dialed. Just make sure that you're aiming at the at the right horizontal plane every time on that animal. But It's just going all the way through your bow to find the most forgiving setups all the way through it, just like you're talking about. And I know you spend a lot of time with your bow, and I, I do too. I think it's just so key. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it, you have to be proficient, and the more proficient – it just seems like, you know, it's kind of like when you first get into archery, everything is kind of overwhelming because there's a lot to it, you know. But once you start figuring out what works, you kind of like narrow everything down. And, um, you know, for example, for me, when it comes to the side tape, I don't really do a side tape until right before the hunt. So, but I have, um, I've been shooting, you know, I shoot a, a, a basically a target sight. So I write down, okay, you know, at 30 yards, it's this sight setting. At 60 yards, it's this sight setting. You know, at 96 yards, it's this sight setting. At 120, it's this sight setting. And I go through the program, and I fine-tune it that way. So once I I pop out the sight tape, it's pretty much right on. I mean, it, it's you can't do that with, with the sliders because, you know, it's all off of measurement more than it is. But since I... Since mine is kind of like off of clicks, I can do that. And that's one of the things that I kind of like that I can really fine tune it without having to change sight tapes, you know, kind of like what you're saying. I mean, it's uh, I've had uh, really good success with it, you know, and I kind of like uh, a single pin kind of lets me focus on on what I'm aiming at. And, and that's it. Um, I think that's uh, really helped my shooting game you know, to a certain degree. And, um, it's just, it seems like, it seems like when I used to have like a five pin on a slider type of thing, it seems like, uh, it wasn't always easy to, to get the marks. But now that I have a single pin, it seems like the, the marks fall easier into place. It's not for everybody. And it's, there's pros and cons just like everything else, but you know, the way that I hunt, you know, it's um, usually those five pins, you know, I'm right at the max of those five pins anyway. So it's like uh, those other ones really aren't that critical for me, but uh, everybody's different. And, and, uh, but that's what kind of helped me out too. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, it makes sense what you're doing. So, you know, you're, you're getting these ranges and then you're messing with your clicks and you're finding the exact click that is good for those yardages. So in a way, you're just proofing it through time throughout the summer of shooting it. You're proofing these yardages, and then you're just putting your sight tape on in the end, and you've proofed it all summer to know what clicks or what yardages, and so that just makes sense. And I, I'm doing roughly the same thing. Like you say, I'm just changing out more sight tapes. As I come out with the sight tape, and then I just start keeping track of it, how it's shooting at different yardages, and I kind of start to proof it, and I start to notice, like, okay, man, it might be just a little high here. I got to roll it to, you know, whatever it is, a yard off once I start getting down to these longer yardages. And so then I'll I'll slap a new one on it that's a foot per second different. or a, But it, just spending time with your gear and fine-tuning it, proofing it through the summer, shooting broadheads, making sure that you've got the most forgiving tune in it, Man, it just pays dividends 
come season when you got to make that shot on an animal, you know, you do your job and you just want the bow to do its job. And that's what you've been training that bow for all summer long. I think it's also important, like they take such a beating in the, in the hills, like, and there's so much, um, you know, every time you shoot, there's so much, you know, even though the bows today's day and age are way better than the old ones, there's still vibration and shock and energy through those bows. I think it's important to go through and to Loctite, like a lot of the Allens in your stabilizers, in your sights, in your rest. Like, I've just seen too many things vibrate loose during a hunt that, man, I'm going to go through and Loctite my entire bow before this season just because I don't want anything to come loose. And I always go through and check everything. I think it's also good to make sure your release doesn't get a bunch of dust in it. Oh, yes. Where it gets sticky. Like, I like to go through my release before every season and get it clean and oiled and greased up. If there's any hesitation in that release, like, sometimes you don't even notice it, and you don't know why you're shooting bad, and it's just because your release is a little sticky. There's fractions of a second in there where that release isn't going. It isn't crisp. And all of a sudden, that makes you aim longer at the bullseye, and all of a sudden, your your groups are getting bigger, and you don't know why. Like, it can just be your release has dust in it. So I think it's important to really go through your bow before season, get it absolutely tuned dead nuts. And then I think it's also like just tighten everything down on it. Make sure your release is greased. Just make sure everything's in good working order. There's nothing worse than getting an opportunity and having a a bow malfunction, man. It's just the worst. (laughs) And you're right. I mean, I can handle me screwing up, but if it's something that I could have addressed during the off season, that kills me <laughs> if, if man you know it's it's one of those things it's kind of like you know where that stabilizer kind of came loose on me it's like i can't believe i didn't check that you know but thing is it's like you said you know you're shooting you know it's like just you know from you know the ride going out you know it's constant vibration from a vehicle constant vibration you know as you're walking up whatever it is there's always when there's moving parts, if you're not checking it, it could come back to bite you in the rear. So it's it's like you said, it's it really pays to go through and make sure everything's tight, lock tight, whatever it takes. You know, last thing you want is you know a draw stop to come off, and all of a sudden <laughs> you draw past, and that can be all bad on most on <laughs> on some systems. Oh man, it can happen. I had um this recent trip to New Zealand. We went up and hunted um tar up in the mountains up there uh you know it's a great hunt i was able to arrow a bull and a nanny make great shots on them everything was going good but we continued to hunt and it's such gnarly country in there and i took a bad spill on my bow which usually everything's tightened down it isn't a issue take a bad spill we finished up our hunt and i went down and i think it's important to just shoot like during the hunt and shoot and so like I said, you know, we just had a few minutes before we were hopping in the rig and then driving three hours somewhere. I just thought, oh, I'm going to shoot a couple arrows. And I shot, and my shot was right. And it was like I didn't realize what had happened then. I looked at everything. Everything looked solid, but my shots were right. So I moved my sight, got a chance at a fallow buck a couple days later, walking around with confidence. I know my bow's shooting good, made my shot. And it wasn't until I got home that I noticed which 
Alan that I had knocked I had knocked my sight. I had actually knocked it out a level a little bit, which you know, and uh, to the right a little bit, which you know, or to the left, which made it shoot right or whatever the case is. Um, but yeah, I had noticed I had, I had bumped my sight, but it was just because I shot in the middle of the hunt that I realized my bow was shooting off and I changed things around, locked everything down and then went on that fallow hunt and able to make my shot. But if I hadn't done that, I would have missed that thing clean guaranteed. Yeah. That's one of the things if ever, if ever I can throw a, a target, it's going with me and just, just, just because, well, let's just shoot an arrow, make sure everything is, is spot on. You know, and that's even, you know, around here. It's like, if it's just like a afternoon hunt or whatever, not a big deal, but sometimes, you know, we'll take off and we'll drive an hour and a half. Well, guess what? If something happens, you gotta drive another hour and a half back just to kinda, just to get my other bow. So it's kinda nice to, you know, we, we'll throw, a, you know, a target in there and be able to shoot a couple of arrows in the meantime. You know, sometimes just the middle of the day, right after, we eat or whatever. Hey, just shoot a couple arrows, see how it's doing. You just never know what you can find out doing those things. Man, isn't that the truth? Well, and having confidence in your skills and your bow, like I knew my bow was shooting right. I just moved it. I didn't second guess anything. I didn't think about it. It was just like, man, I'm shooting out, you know, and I figured out what was going on later. But it's amazing, like just having your bow and shooting it before you go out. It can be the difference maker because, like, elevation will make a difference so you're hunting colorado at twelve thousand feet well the air is thinner up there sometimes that can make your arrow hit high so you get up there and you throw out your target and all of a sudden you look like you're shooting a yard high like you got to change your sight tape or your sight settings or make things right you know i also know that with different humidity and different temperatures your strings will move and stretch sometimes that can make you a yard high or a yard low and and it's walking around with that confidence in your equipment is just being able to throw that target out and take a shot. I actually carry a field point with me too. And if I'm out on a hunt or I'm out on a deal, like I am trying to shoot an arrow almost every day. Like it just, it keeps that confidence in my head. Like I just want to, and whether it's a soft piece of sand or dirt or like in your country, I don't know if I'm supposed to, but those barrel cactuses make great targets. <laughs> but the, like, um, I just want to shoot an arrow just to know that everything's on, know that I didn't slip and fall. I tighten things down, and it's amazing. Things don't change very often with my bow. Most of the time, I can take it through the season, use it as a walking stick, fall on it. It'll still shoot the same, but I did have that deal in New Zealand where that – I had I had messed that sight up. I had moved that sight. Maybe I fell just right on a rock. Maybe I didn't have it locked tighted down enough. Who knows? But stuff can come loose. Stuff can move. And so just that practice shot, man, that's going to save you if you just get in the habit of doing that as much as you can. And you know what, what you said right now about, you know, shooting in the high country, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm planning on taking a trip, you know, sometime before that, you know, maybe the beginning of August or whatever, and just, you know, obviously kind of, you know, look at, look at the area that I'll be hunting. But the other thing is, is that exactly that, just get out there, start shooting and see what it does, whether, you know, and, and I'm, I don't know how I'm going to go about it whether just kind of like back off the limb bolts and shoot a slower speed to get it to work or whether I'm going to, you know, um, the other thing that I was thinking about is like, you know, sight in at a longer distance and then just uh, have that, you know, like let's say it's mm, just just a longer distance, have it hit dead on 
and if it's uh you know if it's a little bit off at you know 20 30 and 40 it's not such a big deal as it being off at the further distance type of thing so that's something that i'm going to do be you know before this hunt comes to try and figure out what exactly i need to do and make sure that my equipment is you know spot on when i get there that's why you're successful miguel paying attention to the details you know going to the spot that you're gonna hunt to to not only scout and look at bucks but to practice your shooting and see what your bow's going to be doing up there and, and and you've already been thinking about it for like the last month or two is how you're going to get your sight tape exactly right in the high country you know for those distances man that's why you're successful you just uh you, the devil's in the details and you're always thinking about them man yeah i mean it's you know it's like i think about it, it's like man i'm going to be at you know 12,000 feet i'm going to be getting my rear end kicked it's like do i the one thing that i can do if i'm gonna be limited then it's like man I, i'm gonna be hard pressed so i gotta i gotta figure stuff out and make sure that uh when the time comes i'm able to make the shot and that's that's the key for me anyways that's what i think that i need to do Man, me too. That's my key too, is being able to make the shot when I get the opportunity. And especially like as you start climbing up the rungs of the ladder of being a, a successful trophy hunter and you're looking for that next size class, that next size class of that animal, whether it's a coos or a muley or an elk, whatever, like you get less opportunities at that animal. You get way more opportunities at 160 inch deer and less opportunities on 180 and then you start stepping up to a 200 or you're just going to get less opportunities to make that shot so you just have to make sure that all your skills you know all your instinct like everything is dialed in and you can count on your shooting so when you do get that one opportunity you know you put that arrow right in the boiler room and he ends up dead you know but it it does take constant work and constant effort and that's why like i just love relating to other good hunters that when i talk to you it's just not something that you can take for granted the same way i can't take it for granted i you know, every year you have to go out and you have to make that shot under, you know, intense amount of pressure. And it's not easy. And I know I have to be present in the moment. I have to focus, go through my shot process, make sure my gear is dialed if I want to have any chance at filling my tag. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, you know, you spend so much, you know, the thing is this, is that, you know, we, we take away time from our families. We take away time from work. We take away time from a lot of things that are also important in life to go out there and and chase these animals and um i, I want to be able to to have something to show for it you know and and um it's like you said even you know it's like i might not shoot my bow every day but i'm constantly thinking about things and i'm you know even if it's just having a, a piece of uh d-loop material set to my draw length and just practice you know, the, uh, is just practicing with my release, even though it's not a bow, it's still something that keeps, keeps you motivated, keeps you going and, uh, keeps you thinking. And I think that's, that also helps out a lot. Oh, I do that same thing, Miguel. So you have a piece of paracord that's cut to your draw length, and then you can hook your release to it, and then you pull, pull, pull until the shot breaks. And so, like, I do that with visualization throughout the year, yes. wherever. Like, I've always got that string in my release with me, and all of a sudden I can shut my eyes, and I can draw back, and I can visualize that I'm shooting on that critter. But 
It does. It's so difficult that it takes like living the bow hunter lifestyle to always be thinking about it, always trying to improve, always trying to get better because it's that difficult of a task once you're out there. And, and you're right. You've got time away from your family, money invested, yes. time away from work, like just to chase this passion. And so, you know, you want to be as well prepared as you can. And when you get your opportunity, like you, you want to be a closer, you know, you want ice, ice water running through your veins. So when you get a chance, you execute and it, it feels so good to work so hard at something throughout the year, put all this energy and focus, and then to be able to come out on top like that, execute your shot, earn the opportunity, like, man, there's no better feeling in the world. I know you love it as much as I do. No, I do. And like I said, it's just a constant, a constant, um, a constant passion that you just keep going, keep thinking about it. You keep trying to improve. So, I mean, it's, I'll, I'll have my work cut out for me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I always like a, a new challenge, you know? Yeah, man. Well, um, thanks so much for taking the time with me this morning. Dude, I always love talking bow hunting with you, no matter if we're talking coos or high country mule deer. And I love getting in um, to your archery knowledge, too. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see what you turn up this year. Um, I'll be back down there again in January. We'll have to hook up for a day or two down there and see if we can do some hunting. But uh, I, I really appreciate our friendship, Miguel, and just wish you the, the best luck hunting this year. Well, the last time we kind of hooked up, it was uh, it wasn't a good day for the coos deer. So hopefully, we can make that happen again. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, man. Well, yeah. Thanks again. Uh, we'll keep in touch uh, and talk soon. Sounds great. We'll okay. talk to you later. Thank you. All right, that's podcast. Uh, yeah, fun in depth conversation with Miguel. Uh, just trying to figure out how he executes those shots time and time again. It's just something that I constantly think about and have to work on myself, and so it's fun to compare notes with, with other guys that are shooting at critters. And those those coos deer are such a high degree of difficulty. If you can kill a coos deer spot and stock with your bow, you can kill any animal out there. And so uh, that's why I love talking to Miguel. He's just a wealth of knowledge about those coos, about bows. He, he really takes his gear, like he takes his bows and even breaks it down a step further than I do on his bows as far as weights and tolerances and um he's always talking to smart guys about it but he's just uh he he's really proficient with his bow and there's a reason for that he works really hard at it and so uh yeah just a great conversation sure appreciate him being on and uh yeah look forward to catching up to him after this muley hunt or after the season um but yeah, podcast is rolling good. I want to thank our sponsors again, Zamberlin Boots. Um, super impressed with this year's model. So that new 320 new Trailite Evo GTX, uh, it's going to be the best low-cut boot out there, man. This thing is super light, quality leather. It's going to waterproof up. It's already a waterproof boot, but uh, I like the leather ones that you can kind of grease down. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a, a great waterproof, low-cut, super ultra-lightweight boot. Um, just super pumped at this thing. It's going to be so good for the mountains. And then also, uh, I got my running shoe. I got what I asked for. So, uh, yeah, they made me a, like a like a like a backpack trail shoe um you know it's like a cross between a boot and a shoe super lightweight it's just a little bit burlier than a running shoe so it's going to hold up better on the trails and off trails and things i think it's going to be a super one to hunt and i'm going to use them a bunch as well um so that's the 103 hike light rr they've got a hydro block on them 
uh, which is a waterproofing. They're also leather, so I can grease those down. So we'll see how the waterproofing is on tennis shoes. Um, you know, it can be tougher than boots, but yeah, I think they, I think they built a really good shoe here. So super excited to use those make sure to check them out. Also want to thank Onyx maps just for building the absolute best hunting app on the face of the earth. Um, man, I just love that thing. Uh, using it all the time right now, getting ready for my hunts. And, um, yeah, with that, uh, yeah, over there at Eastman's just, um, cruising along, turned in that article this morning, uh, pitched some, some new ones for some upcoming magazines. So hopefully get a couple projects there and, uh, yeah, just keep working away on this podcast, keep getting smart people on here. So, um, yeah, I've got some really good ideas of some guests that I'm going to hit up and, um, try to get these things recorded and out to you guys. I just, I really want to get quality information that's pertinent to right before season you know to really give you guys those tips and tactics as you're driving to the to the place where you're hunting and and uh you know while you're during hunting season um so i'm really going to work hard to get out good information uh with my guests also uh plan out a couple solo ones that i can lay down and get out to you guys so uh, it's going to be a fun preseason and a really fun hunting season. I uh, can't wait to cut these legs loose and um, start walking around with my bow out there. So uh, it's going to be really fun. Uh, thanks, as always, guys, for all the support. Uh, the the iTunes, the reviews really help out. Subscribing really helps out. Um, I really appreciate that. Really appreciate the, the social media. Um, any, guys, any questions you guys have, you can always reach out to me on the social media and um, IG is what I'm on most of the time. But, uh, yeah, check us out on there, the Eastman's Elevated page. And, um, boy, with that, that's a wrap. What am I doing personally? Let's see. Um, so I've been fishing that salmon fly hatch. It's been good. Uh, I've been getting in my runs, and I've just been really busy just working family runs and then um, just did that hike to the Sphinx. And so um, I'm just going a million miles an hour trying to enjoy summer here. Uh, but I have been flipping that salmon fly in the water. We got the uh, editor at Eastman's, Todd Helms, came down this weekend for an afternoon drift. Or came down or up or sideways, I guess. Wyoming to Montana. Maybe it's up. So um, he came out and we did a drift. And, um, you know, it was, it was tough fishing. Like, we probably landed... 10 good fish on a dry fly or whatever but he hooked one that was um just one of those beasts of a brown trout you know he hooked it like this fast water coming down and it was like this back eddy back by this big like log jam and he threw his dry fly up there and this brown came up and ate it and it was like the rodeo was on um it started running for that log jam and he had to give it like every ounce of what that rod had and we fish like really heavy leaders when we're fishing these salmon flies because you're in and out of the brush and things and so he just has that rod bent and i'm trying to row away from the log jam and we just barely pull that fish out of there and then that fish starts running around like crazy and you can tell it's a big heavy and um so todd finally starts to get it in there and tries to make a net at it and misses it and so he do no give me the net you know and so i i i slide the oars over grab the net he surfs it in and i scoop it and you know it's like a big you know close to a 24 inch brown trout just big slab on its side just the one you're looking for and off a dry fly and just such an intense fight going down the river um man it was so killer and he was jacked it was a great big fish got some great photos of it like i'm just buzzing telling you guys about the story um so yeah it was really fun i mean i i saw some decent fish you know 16 to 20 inches or so but um that thing was the specimen 
oh man, that was thing was fun to look at. You know, we just grabbed a couple quick pictures and then let him go, and he was fine. But he just recovered in the current, like just out from us, where you could just see him. And uh, yeah, just a great big brown trout what you want to see this time of year. So that's exactly what I'm doing now is I am getting my work done today. Uh, turn that article in, get this podcast done. I got a little Barney construction stuff to do here. It's one thirty now. So I'll be on the river here in no time. I'm going to, I don't have anybody to float with this afternoon. So I'll just go out with uh, Gunny, my dog, and uh, we'll go walk a, a bunch of bank line and throw that dry fly. And who knows, maybe I can get lucky on my 24 tonight, you know, but it's just a fun time of year to be out where, um, you know, these big fish are really looking for these big flies and in Montana, the summers are so short. So, um, I'm just I'm trying to take it all in every summer, and uh, this summer is no different. So still getting in my training, getting in my shooting, bow shooting lights out. Um, so yeah, I mean it's all good. Um, there's just always something fun to do in Montana. So anyways, that's where I'll be tonight. Be hit throwing a dry fly on the Madison. Um, pretty cool cool place to live where you can be down there in 20 minutes. So um, that's the podcast this week. Uh, catch up with you guys next week. Uh, thanks again for all the support.